This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 239, and we are recording on July 7th. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. Welcome. Hello. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I don't know. Just singing. Just John Ralphio. Just <laughs> I'm doing a little shimmy in my chair. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, usual. I feel like I don't need to continue to give this caveat because we're all in the same boat. But my children are here in my house. So if you hear any blood-curdling screams <laughs> or anything that sounds like a Destructicon stepping through Manhattan, it's just my kids. It's just my kids <laughs> making a lot of noise. <laughs> and this is going to be how it is until, you know, who knows? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> who knows? When they go back to school, if they go back to school, don't know. Remains to be seen. Okay, so how the show works. As I said, this is a show for personalized reading recommendations. So if you need a reading recommendation, mayhaps you are out of books to read in your self-isolation and need something new to order, um, or if you need something for your book club or as a gift or whatever, you can send any or all of those to our inbox. We have an email address, getbooked at bookwrite.com, or you can use the form in the show notes on the site. If you use the, I mean, either, uh, if your question is time sensitive, please let us know. Put it in the subject line uh, if you're using the email. If you're using the form, just put it in big letters the first line so we can see it as we're going through our question spreadsheet. If we can't answer your question in time, or if we've already answered a similar or identical question on the show, we will email you our response. And so that's why we were asking for your email address. Okay, we have a little bit of feedback from Nicole. Nicole has a recommendation for Gigi. She says, I highly recommend Anna Kay by Jenny Lee, trigger warning for underage substance abuse and alcohol. Courtney says, for bad things happening to to tiny humans, The Need by Helen Phillips is delightfully strange and scary. does come with trigger warnings for death of a child, so not sure how far you want to go down the road, but it's also one of the most honest depictions of motherhood I have ever read. Okay. Wow. That sounds... How does that... I've never even heard of that book. How did that escape my notice? <laughs> Speculative fiction about the, how hard momming is? I am into that. I'm going to go read that. Yeah, that is your wheelhouse. Yeah. All right. So Jen's going to read us our first question, and we will hear from our first sponsor, and away we'll go. All right. Our first question is from Emma, who says, Everything I was excited about doing this summer has been canceled, and I'm now suffering from a lack of things to look forward to. I was wondering if you could recommend a great series that has another book coming out in a few slash several months from now so I can read the books that already exist and then eagerly anticipate the next installment. Some things I like include high fantasy, women or non-binary authors and characters, LGBTQ-ness, and audiobooks. All right, so before we give our picks, let us hear about a sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building, but turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So 
though a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone, but you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done. Eh, she wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them, but he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. To get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage, but as he gets to know her and gets to appreciate the feisty, foul mouth, paint splattered girl that she is, he'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode. Okay, series that are ongoing, that are fantasy, potentially by women. What do you got? Okay, I picked the Coruscant Archives by Ozma Zehanat Khan. The first book is called The Bloodprint, and this does come with a trigger warning for slavery and everything that comes along with that. I picked this one because it's high fantasy, uh, it's by a woman of color, and it has, I think, it's got three books that are out now, and then the fourth book comes out in October. So if you get through all three, you know, in the summer, you have one coming out to look forward to in the fall. And this is based on well, it's the Taliban, to be honest. <laughs> it's a, like it's called the talisman. It's like not subtle. The metaphor here is not subtle. Uh, this like dark power government oversight called the talisman has risen in the land and the universe where the books book takes place. They don't allow people to read. They don't allow women to do anything. Like you know, this is going to sound familiar if you're at all up to date on like current events and the Taliban and all of that. So it's like a very superstitious patriarchy that's based on a warped a warped interpretation of their holy texts. And so the main characters are the companions of Hera, which is this really diverse group of powerful women who have ma- magical abilities that come from the claim, which is magic inherent in the words of their sacred text. Arian is the main character. She has an apprentice named Sanaya. And they spend most of their time when the book opens, like uh, trying to free slaves who have been captured by the talisman. Like they hunt uh, slave trains and free those people. And then they get wrapped up in this plot that the talisman has. Has what I just said. I'm from Minnesota. Has <laughs> that the talisman has <laughs> to find the bloodprint, which is a text that they're trying to uh, locate and erase from the world because it brings like all of this, this like light and goodness into the world, which they are not into. And so uh, Sanaya and Arian get wrapped up in that quest of like finding the bloodprint before the talisman does, bringing you know justice and goodness back to the world. So uh, it's like super close to home if you are up, you know, read current events or pay attention to any kind of news that's happening outside of America. So you're going to like get pretty quickly all of the metaphors that she's writing here, uh, which I think 
I, you know, if you're going to read the reviews, some people don't like that. Like, some people don't like how straightforward, uh, uh, like, not retelling, but how straightforward a, well, I'm just going to say retelling, of the history of the Taliban that it is. But I appreciated it because it just made it easier to follow. I don't know. That's just how my brain works. Um, and so the first book ends on, like, a big cliffhanger. And then two and three are already out. So you do not have to suffer in that state for very long. But if you read super fast and you get through the three really quickly, then you are going to have to wait till October for the fourth. So that's The Blood Print, which is the first book in the Khorasan Archives by Ozma Zehanat Khan. I also went with a dark, historically-based fantasy. (laughs) I guess our brains are doing a thing. Uh, I picked the Poppy War series by R.F. Kuang, which comes with trigger warnings for war crimes, including rape and genocide. Because this is a fantasy that is based in part on... Chinese history that is more ancient and also more modern, including the rape of Nanjing, which is like a terrible, horrible thing that happened. You can Google it. It's a lot. And this series is so intense and fascinating because of that. It is uh, two books are out now. The third book comes out in November. So that will give you something to look forward to. And I have been reading it since it came out. And man, am I just in awe of what Kuang has managed to do here because it is like very much a war story. The main character, Rin, is a she's an orphan. She does not like come from money and has very few allies in her life and her like abusive step parents are going to sell her off to this guy basically to be his like quote unquote wife and she doesn't want to do that because who would so she aces this test that gets her into the military academy system and ends up getting sent to the most prestigious military academy there is in this kingdom which is generally for these like fancy fancy family's kids. So she's thrown in with all these very privileged children, and her life is not much easier, honestly, because she is an odd one out here as well, even though she did ace this test. So she has to struggle to, like, fit in and develop her talents. And, you know, she works twice as hard as everybody else. She is very talented. She also has a magical power that she has to learn how to control. And then the war, like, really takes off, and she gets drafted into service. She goes and starts, you know, fighting in the war. And she is one of those sort of anti-heroines. Like, she makes these choices, and you're like, don't do it. Like, don't do that thing. But even though you can understand, like, how in her brain this is the quote-unquote right choice, you're just like, this is a horrible choice that you're making. (laughs) And yet... I And I didn't think it, I don't, I couldn't figure out how after the end of the first book, Kwang was going to redeem this character enough for me in the second book. And like the second book is bonkers. And I still am like, wow, I really do still want to know what happens next. I like can't, I, I have so many feelings about Rin, some of which are good and some of which are bad, but I'm just so sucked into this story. And like, what is going to happen in book three? I do not know. I need to know. We will find out in the fall. Uh, it's, yeah, it's a lot, but it is, it's just really incredibly well done. And it might send you down a little rabbit hole of learning more about uh, the Sino-Japanese War and all of these other, like, modern history things that are worth knowing about, which is never a bad thing. So again, that's the Poppy War series by R.F. Kuang. The first one is called The Poppy War, um, and the third book comes out in November. Oh, also, side note... 
We did a recent episode of SFF Yeah, which is our sci-fi fantasy podcast, all about our most anticipated series with books coming out in 2020. So I'm going to leave a link to that episode for you in the show notes. You might pick up some more recommendations there. Maybe some that aren't quite as dark. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Our next question is from Rachel, who says, my mom is an avid reader, definitely gravitating towards mysteries, thrillers, historical fiction, and most specifically, anything by Eric Larson. She's already devoured his newest book, The Splendid and the Vile, and has read nearly all of his backlist. Do you have any author comps for Larson that I could pass on to her? Okay, I picked The Dead Duke, His Secret Wife, and The Missing Corpse by Pew Marie Eatwell because it is a mystery and history and very Eric Larson-y. So if you're unfamiliar with Eric Larson, he wrote like The Devil in the White City. He likes to take these kind of obscure mysteries or events, not always mysteries because, you know, has a book about the Lusitania and a hurricane. Right. These like obscure events in history and then really deep dive into them and tell you about the people who live through them and he has a very engaging and like kind of um cliffhangery sort of his historical writer he he does his own kind of thing but this book the dead duke his secret wife and the missing corpse feels very much like in that vein so it's so bananas y'all it's just so bananas okay so this takes place in the uk in the victorian era and it's about the fifth duke of portland who was super eccentric and very private and like private in the victorian era you think would be easy because no one cared. Like, there's no social media. There's no paparazzi. But he took it to, like, a next level. He had his his carriage boxed in, like, no windows. He had secret tunnels dug between the buildings and his estate, so he never had to go outside. So, like, no one would ever see him. He was never seen in public. Just a really reclusive dude, never married. And when he died, he didn't have any kids. So his estate was passed on to like some random cousin. Oh, and like in his house, he didn't let his servants see him either. Like he had, uh, what you call it, like secret trap doors installed in doors and stuff so that they could put his food in and then he could put the dish out and like he would never have to actually look at a person. Just odd. So he died with no heirs. And then a couple of years later, at the end of the 1800s, an elderly widow comes forward and says that her father-in-law, Mr. Druce, was actually the fifth Duke of Portland who has been leading a double life this whole time. So it wasn't that the fifth Duke of Portland was like perhaps agoraphobic or just very reclusive. It was actually that he was leading two lives because he hated the pressure of being a Duke. So he lived a second life as like just at like a hat maker on Main Street with a wife and 14 kids or whatever so that he could have his own life. And in reality, her husband was his son. So she would like the bajillion dollars from the Portland estate. Please and thank you very much. And so she went to court like asking that his grave be dug up and all of this stuff. And then another dude comes forward and is like, actually, none of that is true. I am the secret son of the Duke from an illicit affair that he had with this other woman. um, And he had all of his proof. So like all of these people start coming forward, claiming to be related to the quote unquote real version of the fifth Duke of Portland, trying to get their hands on all of his money. Meanwhile, his heir is just like off in his estate being like, uh, I don't know. I'm just here. Like I'm here. I never met the guy. I just live here now. (laughs) What do you people want from me? Like, they gave me this money and now I'm here and I'm sorry. I don't know. (laughs) And so it goes to court for for like years. It's very Dickensian and weird. And the author does such meticulous research to get to the bottom of all of these different claims and all of these different cases. And like, so much of it was just con artists trying to, you know, ply their trade. Some of them you're like, that actually might be real. Like, this dude might have legitimately had hundreds of tunnels dug under his house so he could sneak out and see a lady like what else are you going to do with all that money when you're the fifth duke of portland i don't know anyway it's just fascinating and i think if you like eric larson then you will eat this up so that's the dead duke his secret wife and the missing corpse by pew marie uh, eatwell 
I really need to read that now. It's so strange. It's so strange. <laughs> All of my like Regency yes. loving senses are pinging all over the place. Interesting. All right. All right. So, yes, what Amanda said about what Eric Larson does, really interesting histories about bits of things that you maybe didn't know about. And so I picked The River of Doubt by Candace Millard, which I've mentioned once or twice on the show before. It just is so perfect for this, though, because I think what Millard does is the same thing that Eric Larson does, which is that she has taken a subject that I'm like, oh, maybe I'll be interested in this, and then made it so in-depth and so readable and with so many interesting characters and so well-researched. And it's just like, it'll give you that, like, did you know that Eric Larson stuff always does? And it will also, you know, make you feel like you have just, like, you've just torn through what could be a novel but actually is not. And The River of Doubt is about Teddy Roosevelt's trip through the Amazon. He decides after uh, losing his uh, bid for the presidency in 1912 that he's going to, like, you know, rehab himself by doing something potentially life-threatening, because that's how he worked. And the trip that he takes is to this river that has been uncharted in the Amazon. And he, like, puts together this crew, including his son and this very famous uh, Brazilian explorer, and decides that, like, without any actual, you know, expertise or experience, he's going to, like, map this river. And it's very colonialist. And one of the things that I love about this book is that Millard really digs into the racial and like colonialization issues inherent in this project and that the uh, explorers, the way they interacted with the native population, the way the Brazilian government treats the tribes in the Amazon, like all of these things are part of the story. It's not just like great white man takes an amazing trip. Like, no, she's actually really super digging into all of the layers of layers of complicated social issues surrounding this expedition. Also, people are like getting injured and potentially maimed and they're having life-threatening illnesses because they're in the middle of the jungle with no idea what they're doing and they're like getting bit by stuff. I mean, it's a really intense story. And yeah, I it was fascinating. It was it's a real page turner. And I just feel like I learned so much. Uh, so very much in that same wheelhouse. So again, that's The River of Doubt by Candace Millard. And our next question is from Grace, who says, I'm looking for books that would make great read-alouds for my eighth grade English slash language arts class. I've been teaching for five years, and I've always done the same read-alouds each year. Love That Dog by Sharon Creech, Bronx Masquerade by Nikki Grimes, A Long Walk to Water by Linda Sue Park, and Cheaper by the Dozen by Frank B. Gilbreth Jr. and Ernestine Gilbreth. I'd like to change it up with some newer books, as the ones I mentioned above are aging out. As my students have pointed out, none of these characters even have a cell phone. <laughs> it cracks me up every time. All right, some preferences I have for our read-alouds. Interesting characters that help my students experience lives that are different from their own. I teach in a small town in Minnesota. Minimum cursing, see above, reteaching in a small town in Minnesota. Engaging storylines that get students excited to hear what happens next. Bonus points if the chapters are shorter, so I have natural stopping points each day. All right, I am going to stop talking now. Amanda, what mm -hmm. did you pick? Um, I picked Escape from Aleppo by N.H. Senzai, which comes with a trigger warning for war and all the things that go along with war. <laughs> Although it is middle grade, so it's not like graphic. 
I, you know, eighth grade's like a weird age. The main character in this book is 12, and I couldn't decide if that was too young for eighth grade or like just right. I decided it was fine because it's a very fast-paced book about, you know, interesting characters that have lives different from kids living in Minnesota, and there's like no cursing in it. So I thought it would be perfect, even if the character does read a bit young. So it, um, the main character's name is Nadia. It's her birthday. Uh, as I mentioned, she is turning 12 in December of 2010. That's when the book opened. So like, yes, there are cell phones. And it's the very beginning of the Arab Spring as it comes into Syria. So the civil war in Syria has begun and bombs are falling across Aleppo, which is where her her family uh, lives. And on her birthday, her family decides that they need to go. Like the, the war is coming closer and closer to their neighborhood. They aren't safe anymore, so they need to get out of town. And when they make that decision, as they're leaving their apartment complex, a bomb falls nearby and Nadia gets separated from her family her when she comes to she's like buried under a bit of rubble so her family cannot find her and she's unconscious and so they search for her for a long time and then they uh they leave and uh she wakes up and they're gone and so she goes to their predetermined meeting place and they've left a note for her that they waited for her for you know a long time and she didn't show up they couldn't find her and so she they they leave her instructions of like where to meet her and so she leaves by herself she's a 12 year old girl in this like war-torn city to try to make it to the the border of turkey so she can be reunited with her family and it is harrowing like your kids i feel like are going to be on the edge of their seat with this girl as she navigates this war-torn city by herself. And she meets a lot of people along the way who are very helpful and who want to, you know, help her get to where she's going and to help her survive while she gets there. So it's not like she's completely by herself, but she's very much like, you know, this is a ship of her own making. Like she is the master of her fate, whatever, however that poem goes, (laughs) commander of her destiny. I don't know. Um, Like she's going to get there. She's not going to let anybody stand in her way. She's going to find her family. And so um, like off she goes, you know, and you just kind of hang out with her while she is smarter than you and better than you in every way and it's amazing (laughs) it's amazing because you know i would cower in my apartment until someone came to get me i feel like that's exactly what i would do i'd be like you know what this is fine i live under this blown out car now like this is just where i'm gonna stay someone will come find me but she's having none of it she's like gonna go be reunited with her family her doing everything that they can to find her but there were also several other children in her family and so like they can't with you know a five-year-old and a baby just hang out waiting for her to show up when they when she might be dead so you know the synopsis i think makes her family sound kind of like they've abandoned her which is not really the case at all and so yeah that's pretty much it and i think that there's enough happening here like it's action-packed enough and there are enough side characters who come along to help her that kids of all kinds of interests will find something to be into in this book so that's escape from aleppo by nh sensei I picked Clean Getaway by Nick Stone. We have talked about Nick Stone's Amazing YA on this show before, and I always forget that she writes middle grade, too. And I thought Clean Getaway might be a great option because, well, first of all, she's just a great writer. It is. okay. so I had the same problem Amanda had. I was like, no cursing, like something that you can read out loud. So the main character is 11, which, yes, is a little bit young, but hopefully it's like engaging enough of a story that that's not a deal breaker. And the story is about a black boy in America who is in trouble at school. He has been, I think, suspended. Yeah, William is suspended. And like his dad is like super mad at him for getting suspended like a parent would be. And then his grandma, William's grandma, shows up and is like, we're going on a trip. 
pack your bags. And, like, they don't tell dad where they're going uh, and, you know, just, like, head out on this road trip with grandma. And what she's doing is taking William through the uh, country on this road trip using the Green Book, which was a book that the Black community used to, like, know where it was safe for them to go when they went on vacation. And because, you know, William is, like, a modern young man, he doesn't really know about this. And so he is learning about this history and also some family history because his family is multiracial and, like, how complicated that was in the past for them for his grandmother and grandfather. And he does have a cell phone. He's trying not to use it because he doesn't want his dad to like yell at him or find out where they are and make him come home. And uh, and yeah, I thought it was an interesting combination of like history and then modern life. And again, Nick Stone is just such a great, engaging writer. Um, I haven't read this one myself, but like it's hard for me to imagine that this wouldn't be a fun read along. She's just so good. Uh, so again, that's Clean Getaway by Nick Stone. All right. Our next question is from Heidi. Heidi says, I recently lured my wife into being a bookworm. She's gone from maybe reading one book in a year to tearing through about 30 books and graphic novels in about three months. The problem is she's starting to run out of material. She's pretty set for the next few months, but might run out of books to read over the summer. Her birthday is August 2nd, so I'm hoping to pick up some books for her by then. She loves Star Wars, and that is what the vast majority of her reading so far has been. She's looking for ideas for books, especially if they are series outside of Star Wars, but they give her some of the same things she loves about it. Things she likes about Star Wars, aliens, creatures, good versus evil, and world building. Things she didn't specifically identify when I asked her what she liked, but there are definitely elements that I know she likes, include strong female leads, found family, bonus for good queer rep, which is very obvious lacking in Star Wars. She doesn't like things that are scary. Sometimes Doctor Who episodes scare her, so you be the judge. Look, let me just interject and say that the Weeping Angels is the scariest thing that ever existed <laughs> in fictional world. They're so horrifying. I hate it. Okay. Um, she doesn't like things that are scary or that have a lot of gore. Some things that I have thought to recommend to her were the Becky Chambers books and Saga, if she ever thought she could get past the violence. Okay, Jen, what you got? Well, I think that... Becky Chambers and Saga are both good options. Also, Murderbot by Martha Wells, but we've talked about that series like a bajillion times on this show. So I'm going to throw you another book that's not actually part of a series, but I still think she might dig. It's City in the Middle of the Night by Charlie Jane Anders. And this book is so cool in the world building sense. It takes place on a planet that humanity has arrived at in the past, like, I don't know, few generations. And it is a planet that is in a locked orbit. So one side of the planet is always facing the sun and the other side is always facing away from the sun. And as we know from science, that means that half of the planet is burning hot all the time and the other half of the planet is like unbearably cold. And so humanity is just living in this sort of permanent dusk zone between those two halves. Of course, there were already beings on this planet. And of course, humanity decided like, oh, they're not sentient. We don't need to worry about this is fine. This is fine. <laughs> not true. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Untrue. And Sophie, the main character, lives in this city. Humanity is in like these very scattered cities that all have their very own specific sort of culture and hierarchy and government. And she's in this very like restrictive sort of locked down kind of city. And she gets involved. She goes off to like the version of college and gets involved with these young, you know, sort of radicalized, rebellious late teens who, of course, like don't know what the heck they're doing. And they do a thing that gets them in trouble. Sophie takes the fall and is literally ejected from the city into 
the dark and like the wilderness, which is unsurvivable. She's basically sentenced to death. But she gets rescued by one of the creatures that is native to the planet. And discovers that, like, everything is weird and wrong. And I will say there's a lot of tentacles. And that can, like, be a little weird and squeaky. But if you can just, like, just skim the bits where there are descriptions of, like, the tentacle, like, face stuff. Like, just skim it. Just skim it. It's fine. Or, you know, maybe that doesn't bother you and you're totally good to go. But, like, the book is actually very, there's some action, but it's very much more about Sophie trying to figure out, like, all of these people all her life have kind of taken advantage of her. Like, her family has not been good to her. Her friends kind of, like, used her. She just doesn't know where she belongs. And it is extremely about found family, which just, like, gives you all the feels. So I think that this is, like, again, world building. There's aliens. There's found family. Well, there's natives. Humans are the aliens in this situation. And uh, it's just fascinating. It's so good and interesting. So, again, that's The City in the Middle of the Night by Charlie Jane Anders. Also, an interesting fact about this book, there is no sex. Like, there's no sex. Um, it just doesn't, like, happen in the book. But it's, like, extremely queer in another way, which is very cool. So just FYI. All right. I picked Bonds of Brass by Emily Skretsky, which I just talked about, I think, on the last episode. But I'm not sorry. So there's that. Okay. Um, this book was pitched to me as Finpo fan fiction. <laughs> Which, you know, for somebody who loves Star Wars, like your wife, seems pretty perfect. I will say that I have not seen the movies that feature those characters, so I do not know exactly how accurate that is, but it is super gay science fiction in space, so, like, it seems like it's probably accurate. So this takes place, it opens in a uh, military academy for the Umber Empire, and Etienne and Gal are roommates. Etienne is a very, like not uptight, but he's a a very like kind of type A kid, right? Like he was orphaned as a child when the Umber Empire invaded his home planet and destroyed his home planet's government. And so he, uh, you know, became an orphan in that war and then decided to join the Umber Empire Military Academy so that he could just kind of roll with it. Like, what are you going to do? This giant empire has taken over that like I can do anything about it. I might as well make a life for myself. So he joins this academy and he's like trying to make something of himself. Like he's a good student. He's a good pilot, all of that. And then his roommate, Gal, is much more carefree, doesn't so much care about his grades, is kind of forgetful and a bit of a doofus, but they are like secretly, not so secretly, majorly in love with each other, which unfolds as the book goes. And then super fast, like this is not a spoiler, immediately as the book opens, there's an assassination attempt on Gal's life. And Etienne saves him and they escape out of the empire or out of the academy. And of course, he's like, what the heck, man? Like, you're the class clown. Why are people trying to kill you? Turns out Gal is secretly the heir to the Umber Empire. And he has been hiding in this military academy to protect himself um, at his family's request until he comes of age and takes over. So Etienne is now, of course, like, oh, hey, I'm in love with the heir to the throne of the you know empire that destroyed my whole life and way of life and planet. And that is hashtag awkward feelings. And so what are they <laughs> going to do with that information? Because Etienne is the only person Gal can trust. He saved his life. 
And Etienne still loves him, but like, I don't like you so much anymore, but I kind of do, but I kind of don't. Also, there's a rebellion brewing. So like, what side is it going to take? It's all just very tangly. There's lots of angst and feelings, which you know what? I think is like one of the things I really like about Star Wars, again, having not seen most of the new movies, but the original ones is that it's majorly angsty. Like that is the emo trilogy to reign above all emo trilogies, even though like dude fans don't want to admit it, but it's mostly about feelings. Okay. And this is very much about feelings. (laughs) So I think the things that she likes about Star Wars will show up in Bonds of Brass even though there aren't like a lot of aliens, but that's fine. So that's Bonds of Brass by Emily Skrutsky. We're going to have to talk about why you haven't seen the new Star Wars movies yet. Oh, I've seen some of them, but I haven't seen the two new, the two newest ones. So you did see some Finpo. I saw them, but I don't think they had met. They very briefly met at the end of the first one that I had seen, but there wasn't a lot of interaction. Like I've not seen any of the ones where they are together. Well, I mean, sadly, they are never together. Oh, well, that's, well, <laughs> it well respect to Emily Skretzikri, right? She saw, she saw a hole yeah. in the narrative and she fixed it. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, the internet was all over that as well. So That's not surprising. <laughs> Let's do another sponsor. Okay. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Our next question is from Kira. I'll have like Star Wars feelings some other time. <laughs> Kira says, I'm a new listener and thoroughly enjoying listening to the show. I just got married in November and my husband and I will be honeymooning to Australia at the end of June. Oh, this is an mm. old question. Side note, yeah. interjection. This is an old question. 
we're figuring that probably didn't happen. We're so sorry, Kira, that you did not get to go to Austria. Um, Question continues. I love travel books in general, but would really like to read some historical fiction slash fiction about Vienna and Salzburg. We are also going to try to do a day trip to Bratislava, so I would happily welcome a book set in Slovakia. Okay, so we figured, you know, probably you didn't get to take that trip, but let's give you some travel-y books to help scratch the itch. And I'm recommending A Perfect Spy by John le Carre. This is actually, so I, this is one of the le Carres I haven't read, but I like have read a bunch of le Carre. He is, you know, you know, he he is John le Carre. Like he does <laughs> the thing. He does the thing. Uh, and what the thing that he does is like Cold War spy amazingness. And this one is super interesting because it's sort of autobiographical. Like the main character has some commonalities in terms of, like, you know, history and, you know, family stuff that John le Carre also has, which is super interesting. Also, a lot of the, there's like a present day storyline and a past day storyline. And the past storyline takes place a lot in Vienna. And, you know, Lucare is so good at descriptions of places you feel like you've been there. Like every book I've ever read, I walk away feeling like, you know, I know these side streets in places that I have never been. And I don't actually know them, but I feel like I do, which is fun. And who doesn't love a spy thriller, right? Like, I don't know. Who doesn't love a spy thriller? So I'll give you, like, some actual plot, I guess, of this book. (laughs) Um, It is about a spy who is, like, considered sort of this excellent, perfect spy, Magnus Pym. And he has vanished. And, like, his wife doesn't know where he is. Nobody knows where he is. Even his enemies can't track him down. And he has taken the burn box from his, like, spy station, which is not good, right? He has all of the secrets, well, so they got to find him to get the secrets back at the very least. And like, why did he leave? Is he going to sell them? What is he doing? And he, in the meantime, has gone to like this tiny British village off the grid. And he is writing his like memoirs to try to figure out a thing. And so you're getting, you know, him like sort of off the grid trying to hide from everybody. And you slowly are start to understand like what is going on and why he's doing this. So again, that's A Perfect Spy by John le Carre. Okay, Austria. I picked The Tobacconist by Robert Seethaler, which is translated by Charlotte Collins and comes with a trigger warning for Nazis. Just just Nazis. So this takes place in Vienna in the 1930s. And the main character's name is Franz. He's 17 years old and he lives in the Lake District of Austria with his mother. And his mother gets a letter from an old lover of hers, Otto, who um, is asking if her kid can come move to Vienna and be his apprentice. He's a tobacconist in town. And she agrees. So Franz leaves this like kind of, you know, backwoods, backwater area of Austria and moves to this big bustling city to become an apprentice to an elderly tobacconist. And it's 1937, so which is the year before Austria was annexed by Germany. And things are not great in Vienna. The Nazi occupation has like kind of already begun like a lot of people in Austria are actively Nazis there's a lot of communist anarchist political turmoil and this poor 17 year old boy like total Disney princess like no idea what's happening wants birds on his shoulders like completely what I don't you know and so he he falls in love with a bohemian dancer and while this is happening he gets really close to one of the elderly customers at the tobacco shop who turns out to be Sigmund Freud. Freud lives around the corner from the shop and is like he's elderly and he's ill, not in great health and but he takes 
he like kind of takes to Franz. Like Franz asks him for romantic advice about how to handle this girl that he loves and it's first love. And while all of this is going on, the fact that this shop is serving Freud and other Jewish members of the community leads to a lot of trouble. So Franz is like coming of age, dealing with his first love amidst this backdrop of a just complete implosion of decency and goodness in the city that he has come to really love and appreciate. And having Freud as a like character, a really, really well-known character against which he develops is a really interesting way to do it. But Vienna is absolutely a character in this um, novel. And if you, you know, wanted to go, which obviously you probably didn't, which I'm sorry, that's awful and it sucks. I think that having a book where the city and the history of the city is the kind of driving force behind the whole character development might help you get a feeling for a place that hopefully you will get to visit in the future. So that's The Tobacconist by Robert Seethaler. Okay, question six is from Cheryl, who says, I'm doing the 2020 Read Harder Challenge, and I'm looking for a book for the disabled protagonist task, specifically a Native American protagonist. I'm Native, and one of my New Year's reading resolutions is to read more books by Native Americans, so I'm trying to choose books by and about Native Americans for as many of the challenge tasks as possible. I've read Absolutely True Story of a Part-Time Indian, but I'm trying to avoid reading any more Sherman Alexi since the Me Too stories about him have come out. Okay, Jen, what you got? Okay, I have There There by Tommy Orange for you because, so this is like a multi-character, is it short stories or is it a novel? Like, verdict is, you know, people like will call it both because it is, it's, I, I think of it more as novel, but you could think of it as linked short story set because it is a bunch of characters all traveling to a big Oakland powwow. And Tommy Orange is a bear saying. Um, he is an enrolled member of the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes of Oklahoma, and he's from California. And so this book, you know, has a lot of personal references in it. And one of the characters whose name is Tommy Loneman has fetal alcohol syndrome, um, which, you know, is caused by if the mother drinks to a certain degree while the child is in the womb, that child can be born with various kinds of disabilities and impairments. And uh, Loneman is born with a facial disfiguration. And he struggles with this pretty much all his life. You meet him, you know, he's in, I want to say like 20s. And he's going regularly to the local clinic where they're working with him on like not making him feel like he's a monster. Like he really, he has been called these things. He's been treated a certain way because of his fetal alcohol syndrome. And, you know, but at the clinic, they're trying to like tell him like, no, you're not a monster. You're not dumb. Like you're smart where it counts. You know how to be in the world. Like just because you're not like an SAT taking student doesn't mean you're dumb. You know, all of these things. And he has like a really lovely uh, caretaker in his life, Maxine, who, you know, loves him for who he is. But he struggles with this uh, stuff. He also is involved in, like, some drug dealing, (laughs) you know, like it happens. And he is, like I said, just one of the characters. But I feel like because you follow him along with everybody else, it totally counts for this Read Harder task. And, yeah, the book is basically about all of these different people coming together and, like, the complicated like sometimes very dark things that are going on in their lives. Uh, This book does come with trigger warnings for gun violence and rape. And I will also say, like, it is not a happy arc for the disabled character. So if that's a thing that you want out of this task, like, you're not going to get it here. But otherwise, you know, you didn't specify. So here we are. Uh, So again, that's There There by Tommy Orange. 
I had to take this question to the contributors and actually got a recommendation from the CEO, which is accidental. But Jeff, our CEO and co-host of the Book Riot podcast, recommended Fool's Crow by James Welch. James Welch is a member of the Blackfoot tribes. And Fool's Crow, oh, sorry, this comes with a trigger warning for war crimes. Fool's Crow is about a young Blackfoot warrior in the late 1800s and his tribe and village and their like just kind of daily life as the U.S. soldiers are encroaching farther and farther on their territory and as settlers come closer and closer. It's not, this is not a book about white people. Like I'm saying this is about Fool's Crow as, you know, the soldiers are coming closer and closer, but they stay very much on the periphery of what's happening, which is about the interrelate, the like interpersonal relationships, family relationships, and kind of daily life of these people who were just like living their lives while this danger gets nearer and nearer. So most of the book deals with like, they're just kind of daily drama, political intrigues, you know, broken friendships, like there's a lot of coming of age, there's a lot of young love. Um, and it's written in a really interesting way, because it's almost as if you're reading a translation, like the uh, language is I mean, it's written in English, but there are a lot of turns of phrase and the way that sentences are, are put together that it's almost like you're reading not even a translation, like a transliteration, like someone had taken the Blackfoot language and the, the st- this story in the Blackfoot language and then just made it into English without making adjustments for like the way an English reader would would necessarily read it. And so it takes a little bit of getting used to, but once you get used to it, it, it is, I don't know, like kind of helpful. It's, it's one of those books that reading it is work, but it's work that you like totally feel like you're into it. Like, yes, I want to read this. This is awesome. And the disability portion of this book is that Fool's Crow, the character, not the name, but the name of the book, but the character, has most of his fingers cut off at the beginning of the book. So he is dealing with that disability for the rest of, you know, the rest of the book. And he does go on to become a really famous um, warrior, like a fighter. So he overcomes it in that way, in like the physical sense of it. But yeah, most of it is just, you know, my sister was dumb today and I am hungry and I'm like craving this one specific thing and like the government's annoying you know just like very much the same kind of stuff that we all deal with in our day-to-day basis and you know the idea of like having a danger getting closer and closer feels super relatable right now in this time of COVID so yeah so that's Fool's Crow by James Welch All right. Our last question is from Lauren, who says, I was wondering if you have any recommendations for books where adoption is a main theme. Many of the books I found are a bit outdated or cheesy and instructional. I recently picked up Nicole Chung's All You Can Ever Know. I also found Motherhood So White on Book Riot's website. Side note, that book is great. Read it. Okay. Uh, Question continues. My husband and I are starting to look into adoption as a way to be parents, and I'd love to find some insightful stories or memoirs or even fiction, preferably that feature diversity of story race and background okay my pick for you is yes chef by marcus samuelson which is so good it's a memoir (laughs) and samuelson is was born in ethiopia and he was three years old when his mom and his sister and he like all like walked 75 miles to get to a hospital in ethiopia because they all had tuberculosis and his mother didn't make it but marcus and his sister recovered and they were adopted a year later so when he's around four to a middle-class white family in sweden and so this is an international and transracial adoption And one of the things that, like, helped Marcus feel at home and integrate was that his new grandmother 
was an amazing cook and like brought him into the kitchen with her and just like, you know, downloaded all of this amazing knowledge about home cooking, Swedish home cooking to him. So he grew up in the kitchen and then has become since, you know, like a world famous chef. Like he is so famous. Amanda, Mm -hmm. you've eaten at his Harlem restaurant. Yeah. I have. Ugh, mm-hmm. So jealous. Red Rooster, I think it's called. Yeah, it's super good. Yeah, Red Rooster. They like do a fried chicken and waffle that's like legendary. Oh, <laughs> one day. Um, <laughs> assuming it's hopefully all the restaurants are still there when we come <laughs> out of this. <laughs> yeah, seriously. But so, so this book is very much about his, you know, trajectory from becoming like, you know, a world famous chef. But it's also deeply about how he reconciles the different food traditions of, you know, Sweden that really was the food tradition that he grew up with in a very important way. But then as an adult, like he goes back to Ethiopia and, you know, reconnects with his heritage and the food uh, from uh, the cultural and food traditions of Ethiopia. And like then, you know, part of what makes him such an amazing chef is he's like melding these very different cuisines in new and really interesting ways experimenting. So it is very much about, you know, what it means to be adopted, how that shapes you as a person, how it might shape your career. And it's just he's he's like a great storyteller. It's really fascinating. Some of the experiences he lived through in the food world. Also, you're just like, they can do that? Like, what? It's bananas. And I have used his quick pickle recipe like a billion times. And it's amazing for the record. So you might get some new recipes out of this book as well. So again, that's Yes Chef by Marcus Samuelson. Okay, I picked Welcome Home, which is edited by Eric Smith, who, full disclosure, is a contributing editor at Book Riot and the co-host of our Hey YA podcast. And this is an anthology of short stories and flash flash fiction all about adoption and all written by YA authors, some of whom I had never heard before, but some of whom were super well known. Nick Stone, Lauren Gibaldi, Adi Al-Sayed, yeah, CJ Redwine, Minnie McGinnis, who's like Juan and Edgar. Most of the stories are short, like four to 10 pages. And I picked this because since they are so uh, condensed, he really packed like tons of different perspectives into this anthology. And every story represents like a different lived experience of adoption. So like there, some of them are actually even like fantastical, like there's a story about a superhero who gets adopted. And then there are some that are very much more like contemporary realist kind of style. Like there's one that really stuck with me about a girl who finds her biological father like just in time to find out that he's dying. There's stories about foster care, adoption through foster care, both from the perspective of the parents and from the perspective of the kids. Uh, there are a bunch of stories in here about different ways that kids can feel divided from their adopted family, which I think can be useful. Like, you know, if you adopt a child of another race or you adopt a child from another country who doesn't speak your, your language language when they come to your home, that kind of thing. Um, And how those can those kind of things can be not overcome, but like what you can do to make a child feel more welcome, because that work is on you as a parent, not on the kid. So it's a lot of different perspectives. And like I said, some of it is more fantasaical, but in ways that I really thought were like super fun. And I that I appreciated Eric Smith, the editor is adopted. And so am I. And so I thought that a lot of it really hit, you know, the nail on the head. So that's Welcome Home, Search an Anthology edited by Eric Smith. 
I was so glad you picked that. I have big hearts for that anthology, and I got yeah. it for my niece who's adopted. I mean, she's like Aww. five, so she's not going to be able to read it for a she while. But time. like, <laughs> when she's ready, it will be there for her. Yeah, it's great. And it really filled, you know, I'm surprised I don't hear more about it because yeah. I think it really fills a hole in like the canon. Yeah, yeah. Because there, there aren't that many stories, especially stories from people who actually themselves are mm-hmm. adopted. So. so go check that out. And thank you so much to our audio editor, Jen Zink, who does tireless work taking out most of my gaffes. Not all of them. Some of them we leave in because they're funny. But anyway, thank you for listening. And uh, please go leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to our sponsors for sponsoring the show. You can find us on social media. I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. I am mostly on Instagram at I am Jen IRL. That's I-A-M-J-E-N-N-I-R-L. And we will talk to you all next week. <laughs>